0: Over the years, um, oftentimes in various discussions, we've talked about Ananda's guiding principles. And there's two of them that are usually uh, spoken of. One is where there is Dharma, there is victory, which means if one follows right action, the results will be uplifting. Whether that victory is a victory in the material world or only in the spiritual world is not clearly defined. and we rarely know, but we know that victory will ultimately come. The second one that's talked about a lot is people are more important than things, which is to say instead of making non-human values the primary values, the entire point of the spiritual path and the entire point of Ananda itself is for the spiritual liberation of individuals, and so that always has to be a priority. In practice, that means that we often make decisions that don't seem in the best interest of the project or the institution because we have to value the person first. As Swami says, no matter how important the project, if, it's, if there isn't someone for whom it would be spiritually beneficial to work on that project, then we let the project go because it has to be first of all for the person There's a third principle, though, that isn't mentioned as often, but is actually in many ways just as important and is often the explanation of what Ananda does and often was the explanation of what Swamiji did. And it was something, it was a correction that Master actually offered to Swamiji in a certain context. It was, you have to be practical in your idealism, is what he said. Because Swamiji was not making good decisions, or in a particular instance he wasn't making good decisions because he had this idea that everything would work out because God was in charge or everything would work out because Master was there. But but Master said to him, you also have to be practical. You also have to take into account human nature, the nature of the material world, um, practical considerations like money and resources and so on like that. We can't just be lost in a dream world. And it's very tempting on the spiritual path, especially if we have high aspirations and we have enough imagination to be able to feel what we're doing and where we're going. And if we've had experiences that perhaps have lifted us beyond the ordinary world into a a world of light that our heart recognizes, and then, we wake up in the morning and have to go to work, or we wake up in the morning and have to take care of our children, or have to pay bills, or go to the doctor, or whatever the endless realities of of this world are. And there's sometimes a, a, a real emotional conflict that sets in for people, um, where you you have this idea that we're you know rushing straight to God, and yet we find ourselves, and the only way we can really say it, is far from the goal. Just as simple as that. And oftentimes, people actually find it difficult to stay on the path, because they feel that um, there's something wrong with what they're doing, because life itself becomes so real. We think, you know, once I, I, especially people tend to think, once I get Kriya, um, that I have will then have acquired something that will be like my magic pill out of this world. <sighs> it doesn't, uh, generally speaking, work that way. In fact, there's another aspect to practical, and there's two sides to this. Master came from India and started his work in America. And there there are certain characteristics about this work that are very distinctly American. Of course, the whole tradition is ancient and America, India, none of that really matters because this is beyond all such things. But one of the characteristics of America is that we're very, very practical people. You know, we're interested in the theories about things, but we're primarily interested in doing something that actually works. So Masters um, created his whole path. I mean, he had all the traditions of India for thousands of years at at his fingertips through his realization and his past lives and his training with Sri Yukteswar. And he went like this and pulled out of all those things just a few things that were really needed in order for us, whether American or Indian, but meaning in this particular age the the absolute essentials that we needed. And without feeling that the few that I'm going to mention are comprehensive, we can just talk a little bit about what that means. The first and the primary one was that Master took spiritual responsibility away from priests, away from churches, away from institutions, away from rituals, away from superstition, away from indulgences away from anything, and he just handed it to every devotee. And with that came an enormous amount of freedom, but also the responsibility for our spiritual lives rested in our own hands. There's an American comedian, comic writer named Garrison Keeler and he's a comedian, but he's also wise. And one of my favorite of his expressions was saying, he, 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 all his humor is in the Midwest of the United States where church going was very popular. It's a mythical world that he created. But he said, to imagine that you can become a Christian by sitting in a church is like going into your garage and sitting down and waiting to become a car. LAUGHTER and in a very real sense, you see, what Master was trying to work against is the idea that by some action external to ourselves, which is even just going to any kind of a ritual, but it's external to ourselves, that in some way that could actually be our spirituality. Now, don't misunderstand me. we going to places that are spiritually inspired, being in the company of people who share your ideals, experiencing rituals and liturgy and music that is all uplifting is extremely beneficial and I dare say essential to our spiritual development, especially in an age like this one, which is so materialistic, where the force is so much against high thinking. But to imagine that any of those things in themselves will actually make us something else unless we also take the responsibility. And what Master gave us is he gave us the art of Kriya Yoga, which is the meditation technique we learn through initiation. But everything about the path that he gave us is actually the path of Kriya Yoga. So what he also gave us was discipleship, which is the idea that we can learn from those who are more advanced than we are, that spiritual progress is progressive, and that instruction and inspiration will come from those who have walked farther along the path than the path that we're on right now. And that's a very practical and important part of it, because otherwise we hear that God is equally in all and we begin to imagine, well, then he's just as much as in me as he is in anyone. And we completely miss the opportunity to receive both grace and instruction. So he brought us Kriya, which is a practical technique that we can do, that is, is a, a portable paradise, was the phrase that he used. There was a Swami Shankarananda who has a Kriya Yoga temple up in Rishikesh. I haven't seen him in a number of years, but I, on a number of occasions, I had the privilege of knowing him. And he came to Ananda village in California. And he practices Kriya f- through Sri Yukteswar's line. And I was very, he was going to give a satsang and he was going to give a, oh, actually was the satsang wasn't about Kriya, but he was just going to give a satsang. Swami Kriyananda has instructed us very well And I was quite curious as to what uh, the Swamiji would offer that would add to what Swamiji has taught us. And I don't mean that in any um, negative way, I was just curious. And he gave a brilliant satsang. And the satsang was on one subject, one word, which is breath. And it wasn't pranayams, he wasn't teaching us how to breathe, but he was emphasizing to us something that is relevant now which was the incredible, extraordinary practicality of what we've been given. Because absolutely nothing is required except that we be breathing. And if we're breathing, we can make spiritual progress with the with the practice of Kriya. And so part of what we have to understand, I mean, the topic we're talking about tonight, which can go in any direction, which is how to make the spiritual progress, path practical, is that we have to make it our own. And Master made the statement, which always causes me to be amused because of the, I don't know, the juxtaposition of words always strike me as as unpoetic. The only place God can be realized, Master said, is in the human nervous system. (laughs) And I always find human nervous system so prosaic and medical almost. C- uh, compared to the place that God can be realized, you want some gigantic poetic answer to that, but in many ways that's the practicality of this path that the only place it can be God can be found is by our own commitment to find him and what I was I was saying at the beginning is that this is a combination of extraordinary freedom because nobody. Controls us. Nobody tells us whether we're going to heaven or going to be damned to hell. Nobody measures whether we're measuring up. But you see, with all that freedom comes the responsibility that now it's really up to me. And that's why discipleship, coupled with the practicality of the art of meditation itself, is is really in so many beautiful ways the perfect balance because on one hand it's up to us and on the other hand we're never alone in the project every so often just for entertainment in our community we we play various games related to s- the spiritual life we have an annual party and just just for fun and sometimes people make up games and one of them is Autobiography of a Yogi Trivial Pursuit Game, in which extremely obscure questions from autobiography <laughs> are written down and we try to see who can guess the answers. And one of them, which is sort of a trick question, people ask, what's the first sentence of Autobiography of a Yogi? And almost everyone thinks they know it. You know, the characteristic feature of Indian culture, and I'm not gonna get it verbatim, is a search for, for eternal verities and the concomit, and everyone says guru-disciple relationship. But it actually says disciple-guru relationship. And that's where the, it's a trick question, but it's very interesting because we always flip it in our minds. We give the first responsibility to the guru and the second responsibility to us. But I'm sure Master knew what he was doing when he put disciple-guru because the... the, the uh, Rhythm of it is better guru-disciple. <laughs> so he had to have done it exactly for the meaning, which is first we become a disciple. And the practicality of the spiritual path is first we become a disciple. And it's, it's uh, well, I'll, I'll put it to you like this. I know Winnie the Pooh is a universal um, piece of literature that everyone knows. When, uh, when I was living my first ten years at Ananda Village and I was part of a the convent there. I have this theory about organizations, is that when the organization is perfectly balanced, every character in the Pooh story is present. That's just a personal theory. You always have conga, you always have Roo, you always have tigger, you have piglet, you have Pooh. You could all just go to your offices tomorrow and see who's in it. But anyway, <laughs> I used to wear striped t-shirts when, in those days. I had a couple of big striped t-shirts. And among other reasons, that's why I became piglet. Also because... <laughs> because my best friend was Pooh and we were always together. But also Piglet's personality suited mine at that time, which was Piglet told a good story, but when push came to shove, Piglet was pretty (laughs) weak-willed and kind of (laughs) folded up under pressure. So there was one, one wonderful Pooh story where Pooh and Piglet go out for a walk in the woods, but unfortunately a fog descends So Pooh and Piglet become lost, and they have no idea where they are. And Pooh just doesn't know what to do, and Piglet absolutely collapses. And there's a little drawing of Piglet, and Piglet has his head down like this. You know, he's just in absolute despair, like this. And then the next picture, Piglet has got his head up like this, and Piglet says, help, 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 help. And he goes goes back down again. Of course, it turns out that they're only a few feet away from their friends, and when Piglet cries out, help comes to them. Well, I think being a disciple is to utter the Piglet prayer. That's my point of view on it, which is that at some point in our spiritual life, we realize that we need help. And that's when the guru comes. And as long as we're not actually calling... For his help, he's unable to come in. It's not that he's unwilling, it's that he's unable. And, and what we have to understand is the guru is omnipresent. You, know, have to, you have to really think about that word for a moment. The guru is omnipresent. That means there's no atom of creation in which the guru isn't vibrating. It, it, what is not omnipresent is our attunement with the guru. But as soon as we, whether it's the piglet prayer or whatever it is that comes to you, open ourselves on any level for the guru to come into us, there's no distance, there's no time, there's no bridge to be made. It's always present and we just open to it. And so our capacity to take responsibility for our spiritual life as long as we have breath, we can follow the breath. And then if we, if we wish, we can learn to do kriya and use the breath in a more subtle way. But what really saves us is that that practice aligns us with the omnipresence of the guru. And when those two forces are together, and the concomit, the ter- search for eternal verities, And the concomitant, meaning that the two have to go together. As soon as the longing for higher consciousness is there, there has to be the realization that we need help. (laughs) And then the alignment of ourselves with Guru. Now, is that, you know, we're supposed to be talking about practical spiritual life. I can't think of anything more practical than to have a method that depends only on the fact that I'm in a physical body, <laughs> and to have a guru who's always with me. Like, what could be more practical than that? This means wherever you go, ever, any planet, any age, any physical condition, you know, you don't, e- you don't have to be physically well, you don't even have to be mentally, mentally all present. Guru is always omnipresent, responsibility is always in our hands. And then we exercise that responsibility by saying, Guru, I'm here. Help me. And everything grows from that. Everything grows from that. And the simple cultivation of the conviction that when we call out to the Master, the Master will respond, which comes from experience, commitment, and love. So now we were going to invite a few questions and we have a few questions. Shall we start with what we have? We have a few questions online. Okay. So the first one is, when you say not quitting on the spiritual path, what does it mean exactly from our master's point of view? Uh, Let's see. The question is, when I say not quitting on the spiritual path, what exactly does that mean from our master's point of view? This is someone, obviously, who's been listening to my YouTube channel because my talks have gotten pretty simple lately. Don't quit. <laughs> I usually say more after that, but that's what I say. From our master's point of view, well, I, there's a wonderful quote from master that says, to those who persevere to the end when your last breath comes, since we're talking about breath, Master said, I or one of the other gurus will be there to take you across the space between life and death. And that is really an extraordinary promise because Swamiji has often said to us, you know, death is the final examination in which all the experiences and lessons of this life come to a point when everything else is taken away from us and all we're left is with our consciousness. And then that is what determines you know, where we go after and what our next incarnations, if we have them, are going, are going to be about. So the idea that the master would be there to greet you, and the fact that all he says is those who persevere to the end. I, I've heard something else credited to master, and I really don't know if it's true or not, because I never heard Swamiji say it but I love it and I hope it's true. Supposedly, allegedly, Master said, you don't have to succeed standing up. He said, you don't even have to succeed crawling. He said, you can be lying on your belly and just slither across and that'll be enough. (laughs) It's not a very elegant phrase, so I doubt if it's actually verbatim. But in fact, there's a lot of truth in it because all he said is to persevere to the end. And and what it means from the point of view of our masters is that's a promise. I mean, that, that's quite a promise, actually, which tells us that success on the spiritual path is really quite different than we think it is because we have karma. We can't help the karma that we've already set in motion, and the karma that we've already set in motion is going to determine, to a very large extent, how the rest of our incarnation unwinds. But how we respond to that karma is going to determine the master's response to us. And therefore, as long as we have breath, and as long as we know, we have faith in our omnipresent guru, then my devotee is never lost. Another question? Once a flaw is detected in oneself, an experience none of us in this room have ever had. (laughs) What is the process for initiating positive change rather than suppression or just becoming discouraged? Well, that's the spiritual path. Welcome to sadhana. You know, we imagine I was talking about devotion to guru and breath and kriya, but the practice of sadhana, well, is to not quit. People and their questions are asking me the right question. But the fact that flaws are going to be detected in us is, is the spiritual path. A friend of mine once did something very clunky. And as a result of it, it caused a, a certain amount of actual, of, of actual embarrassment for Swami Kriyananda and then awkwardness that had to be worked out. It was, it was not a real bright move on her part. And it had to unroll for a little while before it straightened itself out. And it rebounded directly on Swamiji. You know, it wasn't her shining hour. And about a week later, Swami perceived that she was still in sort of a glum, depressed mood. And so he said to her, finally, he said, why are you so dour? And she said, oh, I just feel so badly about what happened and all the trouble it caused you. And he looked at her and he said, how egoic. And she said, egoic? He said, you know, I feel terrible. And he, then he said you're so shocked that you could make a mistake that even a week later you just can't stop thinking about it. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Because that is really what what it's about. It's like, oh my God, I made an error. How could I possibly have made an error? I have made an error, you know, and then all this just rolls down. But the initial premise is that it's somehow some huge historical newsworthy event that I made a mistake. Whereas, in fact, how could we not? How could we not? First of all, even with good intentions, uh, things often go <laughs> completely gablooey. They just go gablooey because that's what this world is like. And And even when we have good intentions, I've watched myself do this. You have an intention and it looks like a straight line to you. But all these little vrittis sort of grab it. So you think it's heading out in a straight line and then all these vrittis grab it and it ends up going over there like that. And then, you know, you put all your energy and it ends up being sideways. It's just like there's so much going on, which doesn't even take into account that everybody around you also has their little vrittis and they're shooting them all back at you. And I remember once I tried to help this man, misguided but well-intentioned, And he would have none of it. So he called Swamiji and reported what a worthless disciple I was and that I definitely ought to have no responsibilities that put me in any position to try to influence anyone. So Swamiji reported this to me. I told him back, of course, that nothing that that man said had actually happened. Swami responded to me. He said, we can't always We can't always control the effect of what we do. All we can control is our intention. And then he added the phrase, God reads the heart. So the first thing we have to realize is this is a very mixed bag of a world. And even, you know, many things just really end up a mess, even when we don't mean for them to. So the real responsibility we have first is for the purity of our heart. And if we really set out to do someone harm, that's a serious thing to think about. If we exercised poor judgment, well, that's something to think about, but exercising poor judgment is what we do. That's how we find out what good judgment is. And the best thing to do, I I was remembering once I had thought I had overcome this really serious karmic thing that I was struggling with for a long time. I really thought I was free of it. But what turned out is that circumstances had freed me. And when circumstances shifted back, I discovered in about 30 minutes that I had actually not conquered the karma at all, that it was just as bad as ever. And I was just devastated, and I was weeping. I was in a car with Swami, and I was just crying. I just, oh, I can't believe like this. He just completely, completely differently. Well, he says, this is good news. You know, like I'm sobbing. He says, this is good news. He said, you thought you were free of it and weren't putting out any energy to overcome it. And now you know. And now you can get to work. Now, I wasn't able in the moment to turn my energy around, but I never forgot. Oh, this is good news. I wasn't putting out any energy to overcome it. I mean, you see, it's just how you think about it. It's no surprise that we have weaknesses. And it's really good news when we find out what they are. Um, the problem is we tend to be embarrassed, humiliated, and various other things, but the sp- spiritual path isn't easy. It's really very simple. How do you make the spiritual path practical so you realize that it's not easy? And I'm either committed to it or I'm not. And if I am committed, this is what happens. I also had a mantra that I use for myself a lot, which I I don't have to use as much as I used to, but I still use it when needed. I am a sincere devotee. This is what's happened to me. This must be what happens to sincere devotees. (laughs) 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 And that has rescued me a lot of times. There's nothing wrong with me. This is how it works. I'll tell you one more thing which I I read that Swami wrote he said master sometimes scolded us very sternly when sternness was required although he did say master was usually just wonderfully warm with them but on occasion he would he would speak frankly if frankness was needed but he said no matter what master said to us we always felt encouraged he said whenever you feel <clears throat> discouraged, you know it's not God speaking to you, it's Satan. And that is another one worth remembering. I'm not being more sincere by being upset. It's Satan who's got a hold of me. And then the test really has nothing to do with what your flaw is. It has to do with you not listening to Satan and realizing that if God is speaking to me, if Master is speaking to me, I will feel encouraged because this is good news because now I can get to work. All right. Another question? Uh, does self realization always follow renunciation and moving away from worldly responsibilities a person may have toward their family? Uh, does self realization always imply follow renunciation? moving away from responsibilities to one's family world of responsibilities. You know, this film is being made in India and naturally the questions about family responsibilities are omnipresent, okay? Um, Self-realization follows renunciation. What does not follow necessarily is moving away from your responsibilities. That's a non-sequitur that is trying to sound like a sequitur, if there is such a word. Because, yes, of course, renunciation. You have to renounce the ego. It's as simple as that. You have to renounce limited self-definition. But that's an inward practice. That's like breathing. That's what Kriya is. You can renounce every external thing there is and not be any closer to self-realization if, in the process of doing that, you simply become identified with having renounced. (laughs) You know? (laughs) It's just, there's no shortcut. And because I'm a sannyasi myself, people often project, oh, well, it must be easier for you because you're not living in the situation I'm living in, which is a variation on the old expression, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, which is, everybody else's karma always looks easier than ours because we're not living it. And... It might be easier, but it's completely, utterly, absolutely irrelevant. The only possible karma you can work out is the karma you have, period. So if you find yourself, if one finds oneself, a monk, a nun, a householder, a businessman, a teacher, whatever you find yourself, you can be absolutely certain it's the only possible route that you have to God-realization. And Swamiji once said to me when I was actually sort of in a conundrum between external responsibilities and renunciation, and I was trying to get out of the karma by pretending it wasn't there. And he said to me, you don't overcome karma by doing it badly. And that was sort of my way, which is I will, you know, here I am and I was caught in some worldly, worldly, so to speak, which is material responsibilities for this world. And I just thought that if, I mean, I really thought, I'll just do a very bad job on this and that will show what a renunciate I am. (laughs) You You see how twisted it gets? And Swami just would have none of it. If it's your responsibility, the only way to get free of it is to face into it completely and do it well. Now, doing it well is a very subjective, internal reality. Doing it well doesn't necessarily mean pleasing all your worldly relatives. It doesn't mean making people around you who don't share your values happy with your behavior. Sometimes, as Swami would put it to me, he he would describe it, you have to put a rock in the river, is what he he said. You know, you can't just always flow with where the world or everyone around you wants to take you. Sometimes you just have to put a rock in the river and make the river divide around you. So don't misunderstand me. If you have responsibilities, it doesn't mean that you capitulate in terms of your spiritual practice, but the context that you find yourself in is the context and what we have to renounce is likes and dislikes. We have to renounce our reluctance to face the karma that we have And above all, we have to renounce our identification with anything that is not divine. And so we live in a householder life or we live in a monastic life, whatever it is, the degree to which I am defined by it, that's my bondage, not the duties and responsibilities that come with it. You understand that? The The degree to which I separate myself out from the infinite, that's my bondage. And that's what has to be renounced. And if that means you find yourself free of responsibilities, great. If it, you find that you have more and more responsibilities, Master's most advanced male disciple was Rajasijanakananda, who was a self made millionaire, who ran many businesses, who had a wife who totally opposed his spiritual life. And you know, just he had just about as tough a road as you can imagine. Lahiri Mahashaya married at least two children. He worked, uh, I believe, 25 years or more as a government accountant. I mean, you can hardly imagine a more just mundane existence. And when he met Babaji in the Himalayas, he thought that's w- that was it. I mean, Babaji shows him his carefully folded blanket and his water pot that Babaji has kept for him. Lahiri naturally thought I doubt if he remembered Varanasi at all at that point, but his natural inclination would be to think now my life begins, and Babaji said no. Actually, your life is there, and he had to go all the way back. I mean, that's not a that's not an accident. That's not just an unfortunate thing. Sri Yukteswar was married, and raised a daughter, and did not become a Swami until his wife had died and his daughter was married. You know, these this is these again. These are very deliberate. Master was a monk, but he had all his family to contend with at the beginning of his life. And then he had his huge SRF family to contend with for the rest of his life. Whereas he said in India, the guru is supported by the disciples. In America, he said the guru has to support not only himself, but also the disciples. (laughs) And sometimes he just walked away from it but Divine Mother always sent him back. So, it it does us no good to imagine that it would be easier if I had different circumstances. The law of prosperity also says, you make full use of what you have and then more will be given to you. If you rebel against what's been given to you, God won't waste any more on you. So, some people imagine that they're being spiritual by lamenting to God, oh, if only I could be free of all this. But you don't get out of karma by doing it badly. You have to face into whatever it requires of you, which again, I will emphasize, does not necessarily mean that you please all the people around you. What the specifics of working out that karma are are very personal. Sometimes it's to cooperate with those around you. Sometimes it's to defy them. There's a story in my book, Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him. And Swami was urging a young man to join the ashram. And the man responded, oh, if I did that, he said, my mother would be so disappointed. And Swami says, sooner or later, we have to be... Well, what he actually said is, sooner or later, we all have to disappoint our mothers. That was what he actually said. But he wanted to edit it into, we have to be prepared to disappoint our mothers because he wanted to allow for the possibility that there were mothers who would support you going into the ashram. But it's a very powerful statement. Sooner or later, we have to be prepared to do it. When I asked Swamiji something about my responsibility to my family, to my parents, specifically, he said, have they ever tried to draw you away from the spiritual path? I said, never. And he said, uh, then he said, well, then you, you owe them a certain duty but if they ever ask you to choose. And now there's the story of Master in Autobiography of a Yogi, where his father, who was a disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya, and he said, he repeated to Master a certain rumor. It's not explained in Autobiography, but there was a certain rumor going about around about Sri Yukteswar, which was not a flattering rumor. And Master started to repeat it to, to I mean, Master's father started to speak against Sri Yukteswar, at least present this rumor, Master said, Human birth is something, but divine birth is everything. If you say one more word against my guru, I disown you as my father forever. Now, one has to be pretty sure of oneself before you take a stand like that. But that story is not in there by accident. So Master was extremely dutiful, and he was also absolutely definite. And that's the balance that we have to, because what we have to renounce is ego, and what we have to claim is God. That's where self-realization comes. Um,
1: Which is your favorite memory where you experienced God helping you out when you called for help? Did it feel different?
0: What's my favorite memory about God responding to me? Well, I mean, the one that happened to me most recently, you know, the beginning of this year was very challenging. Um, uh, external circumstances in the in the con- in the in the future of the community that I've helped to start. There's, some of you may have been following this, there's been a lot of confusion about various aspects of our community which have caused a certain amount of misunderstanding among gurubais. Very, it's been very, it was very, 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 very tough. Probably one of the hardest things, close to the hardest thing I've ever been through for a number of months. And I was sitting in my house and I was actually writing a document trying to clarify the situation, and I felt Swami go like that. And in as long as that took, the emotion just completely went out of me. Yeah, it felt different. I don't know... I was going to say, I don't know if I've ever had anything that spectacular happen, but there have been a few others. That's my favorite, because it was my most recent. And it felt really like and that was, it, that was exactly the fruit of everything else I was saying, which is I discovered that I had a lot more vulnerability that I didn't know I had. It was a very, um, it was a very, uh, oh, you thought you were bigger than this experience. Guess what, you're not, kind of energy. And I followed all my own rules. <laughs> I just stuck with it. And I tried not to be afraid. And I just felt Swami said, good girl like that that's why his hand went over my head like that he used to do that sometimes you know he was he was the only adult in the room we were all children compared to him <laughs> and you know on different occasions he would he would pat me just like that you know just like a, you would pat like a little kid or a puppy you know he would just go like that and it was always good girl you know you you got it straight so yeah that was a great experience there was a question here in the room yes a person in our family has a bad, bad habit, habit and, we need to serve them. and we have to serve them anyway how how do you face that everyday
1: challenge
0: well what you're really saying is that service becomes very very difficult because the environment is not congenial that is tough karma and that we have to put into someone recommended to me once that you, you create a, an outwardly radiating field of energy. So, see, the only reason someone's okay, when, when somebody has a bad habit, what they're actually doing is they're vibrating on a certain level that a vibration which is incompatible to what to the vibrations that you're trying to have. And those vibrations can only affect you if there's some opening in your aura for them to affect you. And it can be fear, it can be anger, it can be resentment for the way they're behaving, it can be a deep-seated desire that reality was different than it is. And all of those create openings in our aura. If somebody's unpleasant, they're just unpleasant. And they're far more miserable than you are because they have to bear that vibration all the time. Whether they know they're miserable or not, if it's a if it's a low and a negative vibration they have to live in it so you're probably not going to be able to change that person so the only thing you can change is your the part of you that allows that vibration to penetrate and so one has to ask oneself what are all the reactive things that i'm doing that cause there to be a match here because that's what draws it to us we're we're paying off some karmic debt. We're being challenged to hold our center in the face of of a difficult circumstance. We're being asked to accept reality that we would rather not have it not be there. Swami often talks about the necessity to begin by perceiving what is and then working from it instead of constantly rebelling against what is We think that by constantly rebelling against what is, uh, that will somehow get it to go away. But if it's not going to go away, we have to constantly ask ourselves, and this is what I, I would do and have done, why am I affected? Why does that person's behavior, I mean, if they're physically violent with me or something where they're actually touching or affecting me, that's one thing. But if they're simply being themselves, and are annoying me, the question is, why am I annoyed? Then that becomes a very interesting meditation. Why am I annoyed? What is it about this person that can still bother me? That's what was happening when I was talking about discovering that flaw in myself. It was actually about someone else who I thought I had learned to love. And I discovered that they could annoy me just as much as they had ever annoyed me. Why does it matter to me how this person behaves? And that just becomes a very interesting meditation that um, is usually not solved quickly. Because once you find out why they're annoying you or upsetting you or angering you or whatever it is, then you begin to figure out what the karma is of why I'm here. And I'm not going to say as soon as you figure it out, the circumstance will change. But the only hope of the circumstance changing is that you learn what it is that you're supposed to learn from this, including, as long as you're going to be so unpleasant, I'm not going to serve you anymore, (laughs) which could also be part of the lesson. I understand, especially I'm speaking in India, I understand how complicated that is in this culture. We cannot run away. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We cannot run away, and therefore, you have to say, God will give me the, the... Guru will give me the ability to learn what I have to learn to be able to transcend this, whether it then changes externally or merely changes internally. Again, is it an autobiography where the man says <clears throat> about his wife who's such a nag? He said, but I've outsmarted her, outfoxed her, or whatever he said. She doesn't know where I am, meaning that internally he simply wasn't affected. So she was still behaving in the same way, but internally he wasn't affected. Is that challenging? Yes, but that's what makes Sadna interesting. And and you can just guarantee that if you're trapped in such a situation, then there's a, something really good for you to learn from it. And the sooner we kind of get on with the actual project, which is not to say why are you so terrible? Why are you so terrible? Why don't you change? God, make him change. And and it comes to, what are you trying to teach me? My favorite prayer is, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? <laughs> you know, and why am I not learning it? <laughs> and you can also pray that for other people. Whatever it is that you're trying to teach him or teach her, why don't you help her to learn it, you know, so we can get on from this? But the, the, the way I, I think of the phrase, this isn't quite the piglet prayer, but it's close to it. You could either say, God, why are you doing this? Or you can say, God, why are you doing this? And the answer to those two questions is quite different. Okay? Yeah. Any other question in the room? Yes.
1: How are consciousness, energy, desires, and thought interrelated to each other, and how they work in combination?
0: Consciousness, desire, and thought. How are they all interrelated and how they work with each other? And energy energy also while we're at it. Okay. (laughs) Anything else? (laughs) (laughs) Karma, reincarnation, chakras. (laughs) I'm only teasing you. It's a very good question. (laughs) Actually... The word, let's start with the word consciousness because it's interesting. I, somebody asked me to define consciousness once. I realized I was a little, I wasn't really quite sure. So I wrote to Swamiji's secretary, Lakshman, who is uh, extremely literary and also is, of course, completely familiar with all of Swami's writings. And he actually, to start with consciousness, said consciousness really can't be defined because we define everything in relation to something else. If you have a a lemon, you'll say it's similar to an orange, but it's a different color and it's more sour. If you say you have a a pizza box, you say that it's, it's bigger than a loaf of bread. You know, you just, you have a point of reference. He said consciousness is the foundation of everything and there is no point of reference. So there's no way that consciousness itself can be defined because that's what creation is. Now, for all practical purposes, we sort of define consciousness as our awareness, our level of awareness, um, the, the 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 feeling with which we perceive the world. But consciousness is the background in which thought, energy, everything else takes place. every when you When you go all the way to the end point, all that you have. Everything in creation is conscious and is consciousness. These are just words to me. So if they sound a little weak, it's because this is, you know, so they tell me rather than that I've actually looked at it and seen it. So all our energy and our thoughts and... Did you have another word in there too? Say again? Desires. Desires. It's all just the pattern, the, vibra- the vibratory pattern that... We impose upon our consciousness. You know, energy is the force field it's closer to the it's, it's closer to the field of consciousness, but our desires and our thoughts are on a much lower level. And so we are pure consciousness, and we start having thoughts, and we start having desires. And so from the perfect stillness of pure consciousness, we start thinking about things. I want this, I don't want that, I want to figure this out, I want to accomplish that. And thoughts and desires, they start running together. Almost all thoughts are prompted by some desire. So we're, consciousness is one reality, pure, changeless, silent, unmoving, and then we impose on it movement. And it takes energy to do that, and that energy manifests as thought and desires. Swamiji said once, because the creation is so complicated and appears to be so huge and just multifaceted, because we understand that God is Satchitananda, however you want to define it, because we see that as the origin point of all this immensity, we look at the immense universe and then imagine God is even bigger and more complicated. That's just the way the mind works. Swamiji said it's exactly the opposite because the closer you get to the origin point movement slows everything slows until you come to absolute stillness absolute oneness and absolute silence there's just there's no thought there's no desire and energy has ceased to move so everything else is imposed upon that and is moving away from that in this way Swamiji said something that is just so intriguing. And and I, I, he was speaking from his experience because you couldn't make a statement like this otherwise. He said, in the moment just before liberation, moksha comes, he said, when you actually enter into that state of complete oneness and you realize that you are absolutely alone in the universe, isn't that a strange way to put it? You're absolutely alone in the universe, Swamiji said. For just a moment, it's it's uh, the loneliness is unbearable, he said. And then you realize that in that oneness, it's bliss. But that that sort of like part of that is the explanation. That's why we keep thinking and having desires, because as long as we're moving, we distract ourselves from the fact that all there is. Is this oneness? And there's a, a certain amount of our, our entire incarnation, strangely, which is a desire to run away from that. Isn't that so? As soon as we begin to get a little still, we, we we think of something else to do. I had a very tiny experience in meditation. I was saying this on Sunday. A little tiny experience in meditation. I told Swami about. He said, "Don't be afraid." I answered, "I'm not afraid." <laughs> Oh, yes, you are, dear. (laughs) He didn't say that. He didn't have to. He just looked at me and let me hear the tone of my voice. Yeah, because if I begin to lose my thoughts and desires, if my energy becomes absolutely still, as long as I'm identified with that limited self, what happens is I begin to panic. A person begins to panic. And what's so interesting is Swamiji said that there's an element of that panic that's actually justified. Isn't that incredible? But then it immediately switches over. So these are fabulous things we have to look forward to. And we have these wonderful hints from the masters that are uh, just dotted lines telling us where we're going and where we will inevitably arrive. So. And it's, it's a, a capital Y lying on its side is how I always draw it. So you have a straight line and then you have a line going up and a line going down. So it's like the the Y is lying on its side like the reclining Buddha. <laughs> and the reason for that little diagram is when you go to sleep and, and the, this line represents consciousness and this out here is, you know, active life. So when, you know, eventually tonight we're all going to go to sleep, we'll crawl into bed, we'll start withdrawing from the world. We'll stop talking, we'll stop thinking, we'll stop doing everything. We'll reach this junction point, and then we'll put out less and less energy, and then we'll gradually fall into subconsciousness, right? When we sit to meditate, we withdraw from the world, we stop talking, we stop thinking, we stop interacting with the world. We reach this junction, but instead of putting out less and less energy, we'll put out more and more energy, but of a completely non-mental and non-physical type, which is a little tricky, which is why meditation is tricky, because we think of, you know, I'm meditating, you know, like this. <laughs> you know, because we don't know how to do it. Or I'm meditating, 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 whatever. But we have to put out more energy than we put out when we're awake, and then we go up into super-consciousness. So when they say that all three come together, this is the point where we've withdrawn from the conscious level, and whether we raise our energy or reduce it is whether we go into subconscious or superconscious, I mean, in theory. And then sometimes we're up here in superconscious, but we begin to lower our energy. And you might say we fall all the way down to the juncture, but you start doing what we call the Hong snore technique. (laughs) (laughs) And that little diagram also relates to the position of the eyes, because level is conscious, down is subconscious, up is superconscious. I often joke that, as a public speaker, I am in the unusual position of watching adults fall asleep, which most people don't get to do. (laughs) And I can speak from experience that in fact your eyes do go down when you're beginning to fall asleep. So you find yourself here and then you find yourself rolling back here, if you look invariably your eyes have dropped, and one of the ways to get you back is really just to lift your eyes because you cannot both go into subconsciousness and have your eyes uplifted because they just contradict each other. Does that help? I love the why it's one of my favorite diagrams yeah okay A- any anything else me the final exam <laughs> <laughs> prepared, but, uh, I
1: don't know if it meant the real final exam or like for example you know you're going to go to somewhere negative
0: and I don't, I don't know. Okay well the, I'm going to answer it in terms of death because that's the most fun way to answer it Actually I I will talk about this very specifically Um, Swamiji said that when we go to bed at night, we should release all our attachments and give everything back to God. Um, In one of the stories in Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him, I talk about the fact that I worked for Swamiji as his secretary, I showed up at the same time every day, and every day when I came in, Swami seemed surprised and delighted that I was there again, because he practiced what he said. He literally, every night, just gave back everything and so he didn't think, "Oh, it's four o'clock she's going to show up." It was like, "Oh look, she's there again." And it wasn't a pretense. It was really that he had released all expectations. He wasn't stupid. He knew, that, he knew that there was a good chance I would show up. but nonetheless, it was a genuine I mean, a genuine no expectation and therefore a complete and spontaneous appreciation. I myself have never been able to figure out how to do that. You know, because as soon as I think about letting it go, I think about all the reasons why I want to keep it. So, but what I have had experience with, just because of the life I've had, I have been with a number of people when they died, and mostly people who are on the spiritual path, but others also, including my father, when they actually breathe their last. And I've also been at many, many deathbed cycles. Many of you know Tushti and Surendra, and Tushti left here and then died in America. And she was uh, died in the house of friends of ours. And I was there for about three of the three and a half weeks it took her to leave her body. So having been in multiple situations, I'm very familiar with what a deathbed scene looks like, especially in the context of Ananda, which is very different. Because as yogis, we tend to have a different attitude toward death. We're not as squeamish about it, we're not sort of hiding it in the back room, you know, somebody is dying and we just want to help them die and we want to say goodbye and the person who's dying is letting go. I've also been at enough deathbed scenes that I know how they take place. You know, there's moments of incredible inspiration and Tushti appeared to be leaving her body multiple times and her her heartbeat, I mean, everything would go to nothing and there would be this Tiny, just this tiny little pulse right here. Just so small. And the feeling of of expansion was fantastic. And we're all meditating and it's so like this. And then she would, she was so powerful. She would go, like that. (laughs) And we'd be on our way again, you know. And she did that like at least four times. So, I mean, the the hospice nurse said, well, maybe it's just because she was so strong. I actually felt she finished a tremendous amount of karma and just went, because at a certain point she stopped talking, but for a long time, every so often, she would say something. That was my job with her. We would just, we would work on something and then we'd go on. But, uh, so I've also seen how it works. Sometimes you're really inspired. Sometimes you're really serious. Sometimes you're just having ordinary conversation. What what do you have for lunch? That spaghetti yesterday was really good. Is there, I mean, the dead, the dying person is here and you're saying, the spaghetti was really good. We could have that again. Do you all want the spaghetti? (laughs) Maybe we could send out for pizza. Does anyone want pizza, you know? And the dying person is lying right there. (laughs) Because you can't be serious all the time, you know? And then of course somebody comes in to say goodbye and everything shifts. So the end of all of this is um, this is the practice. I followed this a lot when I was in seclusion writing the book for Swami because I was, I was so focused I was able to do it. So I would practice my death scene. And, and because I knew exactly how it would run and I even knew what my face would look like because I've seen you know what happens to faces. I, none of this is morbid to me. I love all of this. I could see my face you know, and I could see what it would look like and what my bed would be like and I could see the people who were there and I know every once in a while, you know, they would say something spiritual and then they would be talking about spaghetti and, you know. <laughs> but because I've watched people do it, I know what it would feel like to let it go. I really, I know what that would feel like. And I I did that many, 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 many times. And I loved it. It was just so glorious to imagine that this time it's me. You know, and just sort of seeing the people who are there and loving them, but just letting them go and thinking of the people that I still have business with, you know, and imagine they come in and we finish our business and all of that. I'm just, it's magnificent. It it really, really works for me. I don't know whether when my time really comes I'll be able to practice it, but I've loved it. I've taken that mock exam over and over again. And it actually, you really can feel it. You can feel when you visualize the people you love or don't love, <laughs> you know. Uh, what it would be like. And you can think about the phone calls you're going to have to make and the people you're going to need to finish your business with. And yeah, it's a great practice. Highly recommended. It's the same Swami says, toss everything into the fire. There's lots of ways to do it. But uh, for some reason, uh, my deathbed appeals to me. I really like it. I had a dream once. I had a dream in which I was standing on this very big bear stage and a friend of mine, who's a good friend of mine, he was a man, kind of a big, strong man. I have no idea why it was him in the dream. I just, he, there's, I to this day, I don't know why it was him. But he was a big, strong man. And there was kind of a, like a, a block, like a table like this, but it was like a wooden block there. And my friend had one of these, like, cartoon a. Uh, uh, hatchet sort of things, but big, with that kind of medieval kind of a curve like that on it. Just a big weapon like that, like you would see in old-fashioned things. And what was going to happen was he's was going to cut my head off. And we were we were there, and we were just together, and I was going to be executed, and he was going to take my head off. It was just, you know, kind of like we're friends, and, you know, this has to happen. <laughs> And, you know, and I was, like, fine with it. There was no context at all. It's just that we were there, and my head was going to be cut off. So at a certain point, I had, I I just, you know, just like this. I just put my head on the block, and I saw him lifting up the big tool like this. And then just for a second, I think, ooh, this is going to hurt, just like that. And just as I saw him come down, Master says, when your body, when your soul knows your body's about to be um, messed up pretty badly you get out just before the impact. So just as that was coming down, I either remembered that, but I just popped right out of my body. And then I was I was looking down on this big, huge place. This was, a, did I say this was a dream? And then in the dream, I loved this. I looked down and I said, bye-bye, Asha. Just like that. <laughs> so that's also my mock exam. You know, bye-bye, Asha. You know, just, wouldn't that be great? If we can just be that free? Just, that's it. It's all over. (laughs) I was extremely proud of myself when I woke up. that I, really, I thought, good old subconscious, yes! (laughs) Anything more? Is it. (laughs) It depends how long you want to postpone your liberation. I mean, what kind of a question is that? (laughs) The question is since there's no shortcut on the spiritual path, should we just give in to temptation and transcend it after we've experienced it? (laughs) Oh, dear. People are so clever in their ignorance. <laughs> oh my, my. Let's try to sort that one out. Well, I remember this young man who wanted, this was like in the 1970s, and we were really trying to build Ananda, and he came to Swami and he said he really wanted to go to India. Very few of us had traveled to India, it was really just not part of our life at that point. I mean, it was all hands on deck just to keep the, thing, keep the ship from sinking. So we were not bopping around the world like we do now. And so this man said he just really wanted to go to India, and Swami suggested to him it was not a really good idea. He really felt that the man was not spiritually strong enough to really draw what he thought he was going to draw from the trip. I mean, it, was, he was being, it wasn't just selfish. It was, he really didn't think this, it was going to help him to do it. So the man said to Swami, finally, in desperation to try to persuade him, he said, well, I have such a desire to go, I know I'm never going to be at peace until I fulfill this desire. Swami said, you have millions of desires inside of you. If you start now to fulfill them all, there'll be no end to it. (laughs) And the man didn't listen, but that's beside the point. So that was one answer to it, which is, as soon as we start on the path, that just says, "Oh, I'm just going to finish my desires, one, there are millions of them, and desire begets desire. Once you discover one thing that you like, it generally leads you to a whole bunch of others. Now, go right ahead. It's like, this This is where we started. It's like, it's up to us. It's not like, oh well, Swamiji said, the problem with quantifying spiritual life, like, if you do this, you're going to go to hell, and if you do this, you're going to go to heaven... He said the natural human tendency is to try to figure out how bad I can be and still get away with it, right? <laughs> Which, if you actually look at the details of Catholicism, they've actually answered all those questions, exactly how bad you can be and still get away with it. You know, what's a mortal sin? What's, I, don't, I don't know what all the words are. But, you, but when it's really just a question of the only place God can be experienced is in the human nervous system, then whether you give in or transcend... It really just depends on how it feels to you and, and what the fruit of your experience is. Swamiji said, you know, the co- complete moral collapse of Western society is not really such a bad thing because people, as he put it, are making experience the guideline for their behavior. He said, if they're honest about their experience, it will gradually lead to freedom. But if they're not honest about their experience, it will simply lead to more bondage. So that's the problem with saying, oh, I'll transcend it after I experience it, is that desire tends to beget desire. And also, as Swami put it once, the thought grows in the mind that desires are there to be fulfilled. And then they just start, keep coming. At the same time, you have to be realistic. And this is a a line that I often quote from one of the stories in Miracles and uh, Answered Prayers, which the book called Loved and Protected, which if you haven't read it, is a really good book because the stories are so fantastic of how God intervened in people's lives. And one of my favorites in there, it begins with this line, a friend of mine said, you would think that that being a disciple of a great master and being a drug addict are incompatible, but I'm here to tell you they're not. And he said... uh, Uh, you won't be surprised to hear that of all the things that Master said, my favorite of his expressions was, if you're going to do it anyway, take God with you. (laughs) And he said, as a consequence, Master went with me to a lot of places I don't think he would have gone on his own. (laughs) But he just refused to give up And then the story ends with him being thrown into jail and losing everything and in that experiencing more joy in the presence of God than he'd ever experienced and it was the turning point because he never let go of the fact that he was, that Master was his guru regardless of how badly he was behaving. So there's all different ways that you have to work with it and there's no real answer. I mean, no one, no one can tell you. And this is where if you feel discouraged, Satan is, talking to you. And if you feel encouraged, you know your master is speaking to you. And Shivani actually said it this way. She said, don't even think about giving up a bad habit until you're absolutely disgusted with it. (laughs) She said, it's not even worth the effort because you won't, won't succeed. You have to really understand from deep within yourself that this is not going to bring me the result that I want. And even after we know that, there's often a cycle of reinforcing it. And it, it will simply roll out the way it's gonna roll out, but if we keep our eye on the goal and don't create false teachings. I mean, what what's being said there, I'll experience it and then I'll transcend it. That's kind of a false teaching. What you really wanna say is, I'm just gonna keep doing this for now. And just, I know it's not really gonna give me anything I want, but right now I'm just gonna do it. If If we can just keep it honest You know, this is not good for me. I know it's not good for me. Sooner or later, I'm going to give this up, but not yet. And then we know that it's out there where I'm going to stop. That was St. Augustine. St. Augustine had lots of terrible habits. He credits his salvation to his mother, who they they also canonized, St. Monica. She just kept praying for him, and he basically said, eventually, she won. (laughs) But in the meantime, he was, make me a saint, Lord, but not yet. That was his prayer. <laughs> so just say it. Make me a saint, but not yet. I'm not ready to give this up. It's much. That's a much safer way to be. This is not good for me, and it doesn't help me spiritually, but apparently I still want to do it. And then you just leave it there. Because you don't want to make a complex out of things. Because it's bad enough, whatever bad habit we have, then we lay a complex on top of it. And then even after we give up the habit, we still have the complex. Complexes are much more difficult than bad habits. Bad habits are just bad habits and they'll wear themselves out. Guilt, unworthiness, shame, fear, anxiety, those are a mess. And even after the habit is gone, you're still stuck with it. So just, it's, I think it's, I, I used to say, I think it's better to sin enthusiastically in public <laughs> than to sin in shame in darkness. Because then at least all you have to do is stop sinning. You don't have to get over all the rest of it. That's not that's the that's not orthodoxy, that's my own statement, but Okay. Is that the story? Well one more, let's finish.
1: So basically, she's saying, okay, I'll just read the book. You had mentioned regret and longing as two reasons why a soul comes back in the body. You or Swami mentioned in another talk about marriage for the sake of it, that is, marriage due to longing for earthly companionship is a reason why you will come back uh, to understand how to love God alone. So, can we take that to mean that the current desire for earthly companionship
0: should? the question has to do with marriage, longing and regret causes you to reincarnate. If you have a longing, if if you're compelled to marriage by loneliness, then that's that's going to bind you, or by the imaginary thought that someone will fulfill you, that's going to bind you. At the same time, if desires have to be fulfilled, what do you do with all that, basically? The question is complicated, but those are the questions. Sri Yukteswar says in The Holy Science, and this is about all I know about The Holy Science, so I don't want you to think that I actually understand that book, because I don't. But there's something in there about purity of heart, and he describes, as I recall it, five stages of the purification of the heart. Three of them require intense interaction with other human beings. And he says while we are progressing through those stages of spiritual development, we are, and he uses the word, compelled into close association with other human beings, because there is no other way to learn the lessons that we have to learn except in close association. So it's not so simple to say merely because I have a desire that I need to renounce it, because most of our desires are the necessary impetus for us to get engaged in the in the situations that will give us the opportunity to overcome the karma. And merely suppressing those desires, that's why Krishna says, uh, of what avail suppression, he says, if you merely suppress it, you don't overcome it. You just suppress it because it's in you because it needs to compel you into circumstances in which you will then be able to transcend. That's not quite the same as indulging it's just recognizing that God made us the way we are. And we, it's not always, we don't want to be at war with ourselves on every point. And so the, the compulsion toward love and the compulsion toward being loved and being able to give love is God-inspired because it will push us into circumstances in which we will learn things that we simply can't learn in any other way. That's why most people are householders. And that's why the compelling desire to have children is so great. Because if we didn't have those experiences, we wouldn't learn what we have to learn. We learn two things by those experiences. We learn the absolute joy of selfless love. And we also learn that human love will never fulfill us. And we learn them in all kinds of weird combinations of happiness and suffering that are its just an incredible mystery. But here's another just thing to make it even more confusing... Um, Master talks in one place about soulmates and it's in in the commentary on the Bible which is the verse that says what God has joined together let no man put asunder. That's from the Bible. Fundamental interpretation of that is that divorce is forbidden by God. Master said that paragraph has nothing to do with human marriage. It has nothing to do with romance. It has nothing to do with sexuality. What it's, what it's about, he said, is that every soul has a dual. And that just like everything else in creation, when we're created, there is an actual divinely intended other half. And Master goes so far as to say that before we reach final liberation, we must be united with that other half. And he said, but oftentimes your soulmate will be on another planet, he said. And you could have that union in vision. And and then again, it has nothing to do with romantic love and any physical element in romantic love precludes that level of attunement. And then there's a story, I is it in the autobiography? It's somewhere where a disciple felt, uh, felt this great longing, uh, a monk felt a great longing for a female companion His guru said to him, it might have been Sri Yukteswar, when the train pulls in next to you, look out the window. And he looked out the window and he saw a woman there who so completely fulfilled his idea of what feminine perfection would be that by the time the train pulled away, the desire was gone in him. Swamiji raised the very interesting fact, possibility, because Master's actual guru was Babaji and that Babaji... Master was sent to Sri Yukteswar by Babaji. Swami raised the possibility that Master and Sri Yukteswar were actually soulmates. And on that level, I mean, these are just very... In many ways, they were opposites. They were complementary to each other. You know, they were two sides. Swami never declared that, but it was an interesting possibility. So that's a reality. Then the other side of that, and this was a conversation with Swamiji I had in Los Angeles... The last book Swami wrote was that novel, Love Perfected Life Divine, which was a rewrite of a hundred-year-old novel, which is an incredibly romantic story about a man and a woman who, after many incarnations, finally find each other. And in the original, it's just pure romance. And they find each other, and they get on this yacht, and then they spend all eternity sailing around, just the two of them. Swami remarked once, that if any two people could be all in all to each other, they must be exceptionally stupid, was <laughs> the word he used. <laughs> because it's just like, it's just it's not a logical thought. So Swami rewrote that book, and he rewrote it to talk about soulmates on a much higher level, because the original author had spiritual inclination, but she just wasn't elevated enough. Because the actual theme of that story, and it's beautiful the way Swami wrote it, there's the man, and there's the woman, and there's all these marvelous, the plot's just marvelous, all these different lifetimes in which they try to love each other, but for one reason or another, selfishness just intervenes, and they're incapable of having the kind of pure love that we long for. let me go back. In Los Angeles, Swami said, the desire to be loved not merely impersonally by God, but by one other person, he said, is so deeply implanted in the human heart. He said, it's unimaginable that God would put such a desire in our hearts without also giving us the means to fulfill it. And that's what he proposed is what, Master, that's why we long for this. We imagine it's in a human way. We're compelled in a human way. And then gradually, we purify our nature so that we can finally transcend our human nature and then the desire is fulfilled. So in this story, the way Swami wrote it, you have the same plot. You have this man and you have this woman and you have all these different lifetimes of all this attempt at perfect love and failure. Finally, the man in the story recognizes that he needs to do something different. (laughs) So he goes off to a, a master and he goes through in very intense sadhana, and and basically transcends. You know, it, it's not clear whether he's God realized exactly, but he transcends. Then after these many lifetimes while he's sorted all this out, he finally feels strong enough and he goes and finds her. And she's also very sincere, but she's not quite as advanced as he is. But by now he has complete mastery of himself. And he recognizes that they're, he's not going to participate in what they've done before. And it becomes clear between them that if they're going to fulfill this, she must also rise, transcend. So then she goes off to the same, you know, whoever the master is. And then she faces literally trial by fire and goes through these magnificent tests and also transcends. And then they're able to come together in the perfection that everyone knows. Now... Swami would not have written that book. Swami would not have made that statement. Master would not have made that statement if there wasn't something real here. Master never talked about it except once because he said, if I talked about soulmates, people would completely forget about God and they would do nothing but search for their soulmates. <laughs> because even the tiniest hint that it exists sends people banging down the alleyways looking for their soulmate. And it's not entirely false... Because we are compelled because it's the only way we'll learn, and the desire would not be planted if it wasn't intended to be fulfilled. So if one has a desire for marriage, it's not going to serve you to to sort of pace this theoretical renunciation on top of you because we're afraid to face it. We're just going to suppress it, and it's going to come out later. And it doesn't really matter whether you're married or unmarried, you have to transcend. And you have to transcend all likes and dislikes and all ego attachment. And you get to do it wherever you are, whatever your circumstances are. So, very good question. So that's it. Thank you.